Head over to Eddie and the Star Cruisers on Facebook. We're a collective of independent creators. We have movies, music, comics, art, podcasts, wrestling, and crafts. Head to Eddie and the Star Cruisers on Facebook, where the perfect gift can be found for just about anybody. Hey, Paul, look over there at the size of that moose. Son, that's no moose. That there is a pile of bullspit. Previously on Bullspit, Moose and Larry talk about his start and his early career. And now, the thrilling conclusion to the life and times of Larry Houston. That's right, Moose Pack, we're back. Larry and I are here just shooting the spit. Previously, we talked about, I'd say, half of his illustrious career, and we're going to dig a little bit deeper now. And I'd say a good place to start off is Batman the Animated Series. What do you think, Larry? That's about as good a place as any. Sounds good. My friend, Bruce Tim, um, we got in the business at the same time. At, when I got hired at Filmation back in the early 80s, uh, Bruce Tim was uh, doing... He was doing a prop design with the artist uh, Russ Heath. And so we were friends. We got introduced to each other. And we were friends in the business. And then, you know, when about the time in the 90s, when Batman and X-Men had both been uh, greenlit the same year by the, by the CEO, uh, Margaret Lesh, um, he asked me if I wanted to do a couple of episodes of Batman. Which is like great, you know, because now he was a director like I was, and uh, so I got a chance to do some Batman uh, with him. So I got a chance to, to work on the X Men and Batman at the same time. That was kind of and that was fun because he had his Batman is a totally different show from the X Men. Oh yeah, definitely much darker. Yeah, darker, more gothic and uh, graphic, the Art Deco type stuff. So learning, I had to learn the style, but also just incorporate it into my own. Uh, storytelling style, my Mitchell style, and, but it worked out pretty well, so it was great, you know, at least I got, I got to do some, I got to work on at least two, I think two episodes or three. There's one more I want to talk to you about before we head down the mutated rabbit hole, as it were, <laughs> and uh, that's, you worked on Swamp Thing, the animated series in 1991. Yeah, uh, that was, um, that was at Deke. Uh, we at Deke when I. This is about the time he. Um, let's see, that was, it was like Captain Planet, uh, the Karate Kid, uh, Swamp Thing, and Conan the Adventurer. I'm not sure which. I'm not sure the chronologically the chronology of all that. But yes, I remember working on Swamp Thing, and uh, that was a new challenge. That was great. I mean, basically they had a it was Swamp Thing. They had a line of toys. And uh, I got a chance to play, you know, do more, more of a mood type show. And uh, that was fun to work on. It was, you know, every show had its own personality. So I was able to, uh, you know, change my style to match what I was working on. But, yeah, um, I was trying to remember the producer's name. It's escaping me right now. But that was, that was, yeah, that was one of the four series I worked on. And I'm not sure if Swamp Thing was 13 episodes or eight. I'm not sure. I can't remember that. I'd have to go on IMDb to find out. But uh, I worked on at least half of them. I know. I have. Oh, yeah, that's right. I got like four or five little Swamp Thing toys on my wall. They gave me, you know, they gave me to work with. So I I got some of those, too. I'm coming to hang out at your place. (laughs) My man cave decorated with, with a lot of toys. I got... One wall is just full of toys. Um, and uh, like that, and I, I worked at Hannibal Barra on with my director. He's passed away, but his name was 
Larry Latham, and we did a version of the, I think it was called For Power or something, but basically it was, a, it was a Justice League, and it was more of a Jack Kirby apocalypse uh, vibe to it. And uh, I remember working on that was a lot of fun because we got a chance to do incorporate a lot of uh, Jack Kirby uh, fourth world uh, elements, background, you know, character design. Uh, the Kirby dots. Yep, yep. <laughs> got to you know, got and we found ways to incorporate it into the show. And I, I, I told Larry, I remember, okay, you you're going to have to have someone here in the states animate the Kirby dots because if they see it on a storyboard, I'm not sure they're going to know what the hell to do with those things. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a good graphic thing to put in the comic book, but when you want to animate it, it's like, you know, I could see OBCs going. What? What do I do with this? <laughs> do they? What the know, hell are these polka dots? Yeah. Do they move? What do they do? So, yeah, he had to work on an animation cycle here in the states and send it overseas before they, so that they could figure out what, what, what? How does that stuff work? Now, the one thing I I do remember working on Swamp Thing is that we had a hard time trying to get, um, trying to get them to do black. You know, like like with Batman, there's a lot of black, which works great because it makes the mood stuff. But with Swamp Thing, we had a problem with black because people are reluctant to use black. They like to do like maybe an off gray so you can still see what you're looking at. But and with, with Bruce, when he worked on, on Batman, it's like, no, they wanted stuff to be black. And so with Swamp Thing, I, I wish that we could have gotten more black into the show because it would have made the mood stuff work really well. Well, and the shadows on Swampy himself would have just really popped. Yes. You, you need 100% black like, uh, to make it work, to make it work really well like like they did on Batman. Um, Were you a fan of Swamp Thing before you did the show? Or... Because, I mean, I know you were a comic book fan growing up, but... Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was. Uh, let's see if I can remember. I know Len Wein wrote it, and um, Bertie Wrightson was the initial draw artist on it. And uh loved the work. I loved Swamp Thing back then. You know, it was great. Especially the artwork. The artwork that Bernie Wrightson was doing was like, blew you, blew you away. It's like, man, look at that. Look at the detail. Look at what he drew here. I mean, it was, I guess mainly for me, it was more like, I was fascinated by the artist and the artwork of the of the, the character. And uh, when I was working on the uh, show, I tried to find opportunities. Uh, there's something in animation called, uh, back then, uh, it's called a health cell. And what it is, it's something that's not going to move. So if it doesn't move, you can ask the overseas person to actually render it, like put a lot of detail in it because you know it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to turn or move and stuff like that. And so I tried at different times to add health cells, what we called it back then. It just adds to the quality. And Miyazaki would do that a lot on his movies, where things that didn't move a lot, you could just put a super amount of detail on it because, you know, it would, that, that made it, it work. And it, it upped the quality of the uh, production. And if you're... If you're a nine-year-old, ten-year-old watching the show, you're going to see the jumping quality. You're going to go, ooh, that looks good. <laughs> I tried to do that in the show. Not that many opportunities. The stuff was always moving, but when I, when it, the few times that, that that opportunity came up, I would always try and add that to the show. You know, try and up the quality, try and up the entertainment of the show to the kids, to the fans. You know, we'll get into this a little bit more when we start talking X-Men, but I was talking to a friend of mine about this recently, and that that's part of what made X-Men the Animated Series so good was it was made by fans. And when the project is in the hands of the fans, you can tell because the passion's in it, the heart's in it. I mean, it's it's not just a job. You know? Yeah. Because the flip side is you have projects where the people working on it have absolutely zero idea what the property is they're working on. 
and you get put in a state similar to, you know, and I hate to say it, the DC Extended Universe. Yeah. You know, they have a, a bunch of suits working on the production, and they they just don't know what they have. Yes, I have to agree with that. I think uh, at, at, at uh, Warner Brothers, if they were to bring in consultants from the people who did the animated versions of those characters, they'd done the animated movies of Superman, Batman, Green Lantern, stuff like that. If they brought them in as consultants on the, the live-action films, God, it would be like night and day. These guys like the characters. They respect the mythology of what they're built upon. And they probably would have come, made those films so much more better. And as a, as a, and, and as a consequence of that, it would have been so much more profitable. They, you know, I really put a lot, I give a lot to uh, Kevin Feige for being a comic book nerd like me <laughs> and actually liking the Marvel properties and embracing the Marvel properties and doing what he did. I think a lot of the people who did the movies are kind of embarrassed that they they're, that they have superhero properties and they wanted to try and hide that fact um, by you know changing the characters into something that wasn't palatable. It wasn't the character. It wasn't the mythology that you're used to. You know, you know. Uh, and so with us, like with with the X Men, they they got lucky that all of us were fanboys. All of us liked and respected the mythology of uh, the X Men. I, I had. For me personally, I had been trying to get the X Men on ever since I got ever ever since I started working at Marvel Productions in what eighty two, I guess. And every time they would have a little sequence in Spider-Man and his amazing friends, that they'd have a sequence of flashbacks with the X Men, I'd grab that part of the script. Say, I want to do that. I'm going to do that. So I want to try and showcase the X Men, even if the little snippet as that in the best way possible, and use my my uh, what I had learned to be as a director try and make that sequence really exciting. So when we did the uh, uh, Pride of the X-Men, uh, myself, Will Manio, Rick Holberg, all of us are fanboys. And Will and Rick are actually professional comic book artists. And so we, we did the best story we could. We did the best artwork we could. We, we got a real good Japanese company toy to do the animation. But at the time, when we did the finished product, um, there was only three networks. CBS, NBC, ABC. They had no idea what a hell of a mutant was. They had no idea what the next thing. You know, it was like, it didn't sell. But our our boss at the time, her name was Margaret Lesh. She was also in charge of the the, the, uh, the company, like Stanley. Stanley and Margaret Lesh, they were both in charge of the company. Now, the, the uh, Pride came out in 89, I think. Now, fast forward about a couple of years later, Margaret gets she becomes the CEO of Fox Kids. And one of the first things she did was she called myself, Will Minio, Dick Colbert, and uh, Eric Lee Wallace, the story editor, and said, look, I believe in the show. I'm in charge. We're going to greenlight it. We're putting the X-Men on the air. And she brought us all in to do the show. And she, she knew we were professionals, but we also knew, them, we knew the X-Men like backwards and forwards. So we were like, I think we were like the first time we, uh, you know, fans of the material who respected the source material were put in charge of something. And we knew how to, we, we knew how to, how to uh, strike a balance between, okay, this is the mythology of the, the show of the X-Men, but we also have to reach an audience 10 or 20 times more than the audience who buys the book. And so with, with Eric, Lee Wall's story editor, he was able to, to devise um, character drama of the characters built upon them, and, but it was built upon what had already occurred in the comic book. So he was able to blend the two together, especially with our input. Now, it sounds funny now, but Eric knew nothing about the X-Men, whereas I knew everything about the X-Men. And so we were able to bring him up to speed and educate him as to you know, who's the brother of this, who's the sister of that, who hates this one, who loves this one, that kind of stuff. And we would bring run him up to speed on what was going on in the X-Men. And then he took that and was able to craft stories respectful of the source material, but also to try and create stories that, were, that made it accessible 
to a large audience. I mean, comic books at the time, I think, were selling maybe a million copies. But we needed viewership of like 10 or 15 million people to keep it on the air. So we had to take, you know, so we had to take the stories as they existed, but we had to simplify the minutia of what, you know, all the mythology of the characters, something that someone could watch and get the ratings and make it interesting. And, uh, you know, a lot of what we did, except for Margaret, one of the persons, they said we were doing everything wrong. Because you got to remember, this is 1992, and, and a successful animated show is, is either Super Friends or Scooby-Doo. That's how the executives were thinking back then. And we were saying, no, we don't want to do that. We want to do this. We want to do x We want to do something that's more sophisticated than what's been going, going on out there. And uh, in the beginning, they were like still trying to make us down, down, you know, dumb down the show. And we were trying to play, we played the political game of like, okay, that sounds like a nice idea. We'll, we'll consider it. You know, we kind of still doing the song and dance like that. And it came to a point sometimes, at some point they said, no, instead of suggesting, they started saying, you will do this, you will do that. And as a group, we told them, look, if you, if this is what you want us to do, all four of us are quitting because we're not going to do that. We need to protect the integrity of the show. And we won that political battle. So it was like they, they really didn't believe what we were doing was the correct path for a show like what we were doing. You don't do character dramas. You don't do continued stories. You don't kill off characters in an episode. You don't show characters punching another character in anger. I mean, you don't, and you don't hit, you don't do, uh, you know, uh, prejudice and, and, uh, and uh, alienation and, and depression. And yet that's what X-Men's all about. Yeah. Said, no, you don't do that. We said, no, this, this will work. We believe in the show. And we had to fight for that type of integrity to put it on the air. And uh, because the Internet didn't exist back then, we were flying by the seat of our pants. We were flying by like we knew, we know this is what the show should be. And it wasn't until like, like a season of episodes was 13 episodes. We didn't find out that, that the public like you liked the show until maybe episode 12. Because we had no, because, because we had won so many politi- political battles, they didn't get, they didn't tell us anything. They just thought we were going to do our 13 episodes, one and done. But they didn't give us any publicity. They didn't give us any feedback. They didn't, you know, it wasn't until way later that we found out the fans really liked the show. And, uh, it, it it was it was gratifying to start to learn that, but like at the and when we when I was working on like the last episode, I had no guarantee that it was going to be a season two, but I just poured my heart and soul into the last three episodes to make it the best episodes I could. And I figured that was it. You know, the writers had already moved on; they had their resumes, they had moved on to other shows. I had my resume out ready to look for more work. When literally on the last episode. We were getting ready to deliver to the network when they told us we got to pick up for season two. But that, you know, that ending you had in season one, you got to change the ending. Because I had an ending of uh, Scott and Gene on the blanket talking about having kids. Um, and it ends with them on a blanket on a hill, the sunset, fade out. That was the end of the series. And so. Scott and Gene get their happy ending. Yeah, that was the happy ending of them getting married at sunset stuff like that so we we took the same scene we dropped it that those visuals and we we manufactured this like bogus computer screen with things were flashing and stuff and i think gene's dialogue was something like uh who knows what the future holds and then we had to take literally had to take this the guy that was in post like we gave him a line said here read this and we had him say sinister knows what your future holds and we dubbed that into the show and then we added a computer shadow to, you know, to, to say, okay, this could be Mr. Sinister. And that was the manufactured new ending for um, the last episode, episode 13 of season one. And uh, that's when we found out we had a pickup. But we never found out we had a pick. You know, they would let us go for another 13 and then wait till the very last minute to say, okay, you got a pickup season three. They never said, okay, like... Talk about waiting until the last minute. Yeah, it wasn't like, okay, we're going to pick it up in two years. 
you know, it was like they just kept us on this gang. It's like we're walking the gangplank. You're ready to jump off. Oh, don't worry. We're going to lengthen the gangplank. Oh, maybe that suspense is part of the formula that worked. I mean, I, I guess, but I tell you, I wish they had told us like a two-year pickup because there were stories that we could have, we could have paced. There were like subplots and stories we could have paced out for like two seasons, like, you know, setting up characters, setting up A and B and C, you know, subplots that would have been great, but, you know, it is what it is. And, you know, we, we plotted out story arcs for first season of like, you know, this is the secondary story we want to tell, like, you know, Magneto and, and Xavier stuck in the Savage Land or something like that. Or um, Morph has gone off the range, off the off the planet. I'm not off the planet, I'm sorry, off the, off the, uh, out of the group kind of guy. He's been turning. Yeah, off his rocker. Yeah, and he's been, he's got basically PTSD. Yeah, you and, guys introduced uh, PTSD to kids. Yeah, and the problems that it can happen to you when it happens. And so, so the old, those kind of things. Uh, so, yeah, this the X Men series is like the first time I think people they hired professionals who actually liked what they were working on, you know. And uh, I think, go ahead. Well, and X Men the animated series is essentially yours, Will's, and Margaret's Phoenix rising from the ashes. I mean. Had it not been for the crash and burn of Pride of the X-Men, I don't think that X-Men the Animated Series would have had the drive and impact that it ended up having. No, you're right. You guys had already had one attempt at a passion project in Pride that you set out to do. Damn it, you were going to do it. And it inadvertently, due to meddling, crashed and burned. And then... Years later, Margaret's in a position where she can assemble the team and greenlight the project and basically give you guys a second chance. You guys came in pencils hot, guns blazing, and you never looked back. You came in with a fire in your belly ready to roll. You're, you're right about the time thing because I think if, if Pride of the X-Men had taken off, yeah, the, the animated series would not have happened. Uh, the thing is that also what what Will and I and Rick found out, we found out the price of co- of a compromise. Like the part of the X Men, the first villain was not supposed to be Magneto. We wanted the X Men to fight the Sentinel, and but the people who were putting up the money to do Pride, some of the money where some of the money came from, uh, they wanted to sell toys. They wanted to sell plastic. And so that's why we came up with the evil mutant for that episode, you know, Toad and Magneto and the rest of them. But our first gut instinct was Sentinel. And so, and also, you know, we, we did not want an Australian. <laughs> but at the time, uh, Crocodile Dundee was popular. So the people who had the money said, hey, can you make him Australian? Like, Crocodile Dundee, that's where that came from. That was a compromise. But he's Canadian. Uh, yes, we know that. But the people with money didn't care. No, I know. They wanted to sell plastic, and they wanted to be like something they knew was popular at the time. Now, fast forward, when we got a chance to do the, the animated series with Margaret, that's why we were fighting so hard for the integrity of the show, because we had been down that road before. And it's like, no, I'm not going to do this again. If they're going to make us do something stupid, I'm walking away. And that's how all of us felt, you know. I had the chance in a previous interview to talk with Eric and Julia LeWald about, you know, the people pushing product placement and everything. Like, you know, the X-Men walkie-talkies and the bed sheets and just the, the weird product placement that they wanted. And that wouldn't fit in X-Men the Animated Series. Doing... Doing that in this universe probably would have tanked the series. Yeah, yeah. You know, just it wouldn't fit. No, not at all. And you know, I I took a page from the Star Trek people and uh, set of communicators. Just have them press the X on our costume, and it works like the Star Trek communicators. You know, and it made storytelling so much easier to just have them. It's already there. Why not? Yeah, just have them press the emblem and have the emblem, you know, glow or blink, whatever. You don't need walkie-talkies. That's 
<laughs> well, and they sure as hell aren't going to use walkie-talkies of themselves. I mean, come on. That's a, yeah. But, you know, they wanted, yeah, product. We did put one product into the show. Um, it was the, uh, we turned it into the X-Men mini jet. So that when a character, instead of taking out the Blackbird all the time, if a, if a single character needs to go from here to there, we, we did create a little vehicle for them to go from point A to point B. Um, that one did, and it served a purpose. And so that's one reason we, we allowed that compromise to get in there. We did need something like that for the show. And that, that product did work out. X-Men the Animated Series really set the bar and set it pretty high for all X-Men properties for the future, whether it's movies or TV shows. I mean, they just, that's the marker for everything going forward from that point. Yeah. I mean, regardless of the property, everything gets compared to X-Men the Animated Series these days. Yeah, Brian, you know, Brian Singer never read an X-Men book in his life. He only watched our, our series to create the, the live-action movies now. He said that. No, that's crazy. I didn't know that. You know. When it came to the animation, you guys did a knockout job with character design and everything that went into that. I mean... The animators involved and the artists involved did everything short of bringing the comic book to life. The animated series came as close as you could from reading the comic and picturing what you saw on the page to real life. And I think that really resonated super well with the fans of the comic book. And then you couple that with the storylines that drew in the older crowd, the flashy colors that drew in the younger crowd, the superheroes that drew in the you know middle crowd. Hell, the show really did have something for everyone. Yeah. And the writers, I mean, the, Eric and them were able to, as he put it, he said, we didn't want to write down to kids. We want to write up to kids. We didn't, we didn't want to write Scooby-Doo. We want to write something else more like closer to being an adult. And, you know, and the thing was, as a young kid, you're the first time you saw the X-Men, you're going to see um, the explosions, the laser beams, and that's going to be entertaining for you. When you watch it, as, a re- as you get older and you see it again, you're going to catch more of the, assault, the, the adult subjects that we tried to include, the relationship, the anger, the, uh, the, the, the prejudice against being different, you know, that it's okay to be different. Um, more of the larger... Uh, societal problems we have we kind of showcase within the show like the quarantines and, and, and being blamed for things that you didn't do you, you see it more as an, as an adult uh, you know older than you did when you were like 9 years old and we, we knew that's what we wanted to do we wanted to write stuff like that that uh, was entertaining to us but we had a gut feeling that there's an audience for that out there and luckily you know Eric and them even though they didn't know the X-Men, they were able to write the character comics. And I think that's what helped quite a bit to, uh, to make the uh, show very long-lasting. Because, like, Batman had, Batman had, like, double our budget, double the time. The quality of the Batman is so much more better than the X-Men. But I think we have the integrity of the story that really keeps keep you, keep you involved with the show. And for me, I knew I had, I didn't have a lot of money animation. I knew what is possible, what was not possible. I, I knew the studio ACOM overseas wasn't one of the best. They were like, okay. And so what I would do was, as a director, I would take all the storyboards and I would make sure each scene, scene was simple enough. I, I tried to design shows to the, to the strength of the studio I was working on, not to their weaknesses. And so things I knew they couldn't do, I would just redraw it into something I was more Okay, I can get I can get this will look good if they, if they just do it this way. Like I'm not going to get full Disney animation out of them, but if I do it this way, it'll work. Also, I think if you look past I think the first three or four episodes, the one thing you'll notice in the X Men series, I cut out all the walking. That's all. That's just gone because that was a waste of time, and it doesn't look good. And so you'd have things like Cyclops, like or someone says, "Let's go." And the next thing you cut to is the 
is the rear exhaust of the jet taken off into the, into the sky. I didn't let people walk in and out of things unless I had to, but that helped with you know, elevating the quality of the show. And also, like, as a character like Miss Sinister, I wanted to do, have, I wanted to be, I wanted him to be as accurate as, accurate as I could. But if you look at the model sheet of Mr. Sinister, he's got lines all, he's got lines that go across his body. He's got this rooster tail cape. Um, and that if you have a character like that, like just those simple turns, you're going to kill the animators trying to do something, a simple gesture. And so with him, in order, I wanted his costume to be accurate. But what I did was I, I, I made him more like Dracula. Like you did, you'd have like a scene of like pure black. And you'd have them walk out of the black into the scene, but maybe just from the chest up. So it wasn't the full body. And then maybe he's talking to someone. When you cut back to Sinister, he's in another part of the room. But when you cut back to him again, you talk to the other character talking. When you cut back, he's someplace else. And then at the end of the sequence, he does his, like, mysterious laughter. And then he would just walk backwards into black and disappear. But I played it more like Dracula. And... Uh, that way I could get the, I could put all the details I wanted, just not the full animation. You know, it's something that I remember learning from the original Johnny Quest, because he had the same problems of having Doug um, Wilde with his show, of not having, working with people who were not used to drawing humans. They were used to drawing Huckleberry Hound or Yogi Bear. And so he would have them design shots that didn't move, but looked really good. So my logic of doing the X-Men was like trying to do the same thing, but trying to have great shots, great mood, but design it so that stuff didn't, we, I didn't waste animation on stuff I knew that couldn't do good. And so that was part of what I did was on every show and every storyboard, every, every scene, I would go through it with a fine tooth comb and try and fix everything that I could. It was a lot of work, I tell you. Because I, I was redrawing, I call it course correcting, the show on so many levels to try and make sure that it was accurate to the book and also it would I could get the best performance from overseas by changing stuff and minimizing stuff and getting rid of this and adding that. I, I there was a um, I think it's called the uh it was a two episode part called Time Cheaters where Cable and Bishop and Apocalypse went involved for three of them. And it was a two parter. Time Cheaters one was written by one writer. Time Fugitive 2, Part 2, was written by a different writer. I sent both, when I got the script, I sent them both out at the same time to, like, two different teams, the storyboard. And when I got, you know, when I got Part 2 back, the visuals for Part 2 did not match Part 1 in terms of the battle between the X-Men, the X-Men, Bishop, and the Cable. Because it was, it's, a, it's like a time loop. It's, it's like the same story from Part 1, but with Part 2, but now Cable's involved. And that there's a whole battle scene that goes on. I had to redraw the whole thing from scratch to match what happened in part one. And if, whenever you see it, you'll notice there's no, there's no dialogue because I had to redraw everything and there was no time for anything to be re-recorded. A lot of work. But I think it, it paid off in that people really liked those two episodes. And uh, I was doing my best to uh, make it as best as I could make it, you know. It was quite challenging. Luckily, I had a team of my. When I would do these kind of changes, I would, I would, it's like a penciler in a comic book. I'd be the one designing the shots. Every, you know, cables over here, rogues over here. I'd be penciling it, and then I had a staff of artists, uh, Mark Lewis and uh, Frank Scalacci. They would take it and clean it up so that uh, I could get it all done. I couldn't really, literally draw it all, but I could actually set up the shots, and then they would do the final. They would ink it, basically, and then. Uh, but that's how I got. That's how I got stuff done. I think you underestimated the ability of the animators. Reading previously on X Men, Eric's book, it sounds like you may or may not be in possession of a tape that has some liberties taken by the animators on Lady Deathstrike. <laughs> yeah. And they made her a little bit more lifelike and fluid. And not so, um, I guess, child friendly. Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if you and I saw it, uh, right as an as an adult, it's like she's got boobs, and they move and they bounce and everything when she turns. But my God, that was for 
you're talking about like in the 90s on for Saturday morning kids, they were like flipping out. And she had, a, you know, and her costume was a plunging neckline that went all the way down to her belt. You know? Oh my. So, because when we designed it, we designed it to be kind of flat tested. And it got overseas, and the guy said they helped us out. <laughs> they made her, they didn't make her flat chested. So, um, there was a lot of bouncing and follow through and settle. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, Everything bounced and moved like it would if she were a real person. Correct. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. They, they, you know, they were really paranoid to get, um, the, you know, for parents to call them in and saying, like, you're showing boobs. What are you doing? I'm showing my kids boobs. You know, they were real paranoid about that. So, Well, I mean, if Disney can do it, you can do it. Jeez. <laughs> I mean, look at Jessica Rabbit. I know. Yeah. <laughs> She's all boobs. She's all boobs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's one of those um, things that doesn't make any sense. But yeah, we. Lady boob strike. <laughs> Yeah, and that 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 uh, I think that that was done by um, that entire thing with the lady death that was done by a company called Patsy, uh, Philippine Animation Studio. I don't I can't remember what the I stands for, but P A S I, and they did they did phenomenal work. I mean they did the detail they did. I mean they I mean the there are these guys that are like half cyborg people, uh, you know half robot half. Uh, some of them, like, half of them are like a tire tread or something like that. I can't remember their names now, but they put a lot of work into that. It was like they really made that show look really good. Because the thing was, uh, the animators in, at that studio were also Marvel comic book fans. 90% of them were Marvel comic book fans at Patsy. So the fact they were doing Wolverine, they were doing the X-Men, they were doing Lady Deathstrike, it was like being in, in, in a candy store and you love candy. So they were geeking out too. Oh yeah, oh yeah, big time. And they were putting their best foot forward. Uh, you know, they enjoyed it quite a bit. They they did a lot more animation than I than I called for, and that's what made it like really good. Sounds like they certainly inflated the animation. Yeah, yeah. And that that little miniature is also set up. It set up the Phoenix Saga because that was the first time we introduced a, a Shi'ar ship that had crash landed on Earth. And that's set up uh, from, I think, at the end of that, that's when we set up the coming of the Phoenix Saga at the end of that, you know, those episodes. Well, and, you know, speaking of being a fan and everything, you had the foresight to introduce a character to TV long before, and I mean long before he had his own movie. Oh, Deadpool? No, uh, Black Panther. Oh, the Black Panther, that too, yes. Now, unless you're a fan, most people have always written him off as an incidental character. Yeah. But in X-Men Season 2, you brought him to life. Yeah. You said, no, we're going to bring him in. And then later on, you brought him back in Fantastic Four. Yeah. And that touches back on what I said earlier about the benefits of having fans create this stuff. I mean, you get to take a character who otherwise wouldn't be in this and is relegated strictly to their little sections of fandom and their little piece of the pie right. and bring them into the whole damn thing. Yeah. And this, I think this, the service is called Sanctuary. I think it involved um, uh, Magneto bringing character, being the mutant to a place called Asteroid M. He had set it up in outer space. And when he was collecting mutant kids, he went to Africa. And the first thing is, hey, look, he's an actor. That's what a Black Panther's got. I got to include him into the show. And uh, so, you know, I one of the things what I did was being a fan. Well, let me back up a second. When I was a kid reading Marvel Comics, Marvel Comics was the distribution was being held down by DC. They were national periodic publications. And they said, Marvel, you can only publish five or six titles. That's it. You can't do anything else. So Stan Lee, in order to get around that, he would cameo his other characters in other books. So I remember vividly as a kid reading Spider-Man, and in one panel, you see Thor, 
And, you know, Spider-Man would be asking, hey, where the hell are you going? Oh, watch where you're throwing that hammer. He'd say something like that. And then underneath, you'd have a little footnote that said, if you want to see where Thor is going, check out issue Journey to Mystery, you know, some number. <laughs> and so, and so, you know, Stan, in order to get around distribution limits, he, he cross-promoted the book and other books. And what Stan did, he, he created a connected universe. So I remember that as a kid. It, it really resonated with me. So when I got a chance to, to do the X-Men, I tried, the, one of the cameos I tried to do was to add Spider-Man, like maybe you see him in the background, uh, but it's not part of the story. And when I submitted that character, it got rejected. And they never told me why. I, I have a feeling it had, probably had to do with contracts and ownership and that kind of stuff. Okay, fine. There was an episode called uh, Slave Island where the writer wrote in some characters. He also wrote in like five or six characters called Mutant 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So I brought my comic books into work, Xeroxed them on the, on the Xerox machine, and I said, okay, make this one Sunfire, make this Mystique, make this a Blob. And I started assigning existing Marvel characters to, that, to those names, but I never changed the name. They were still called Mutant 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And so when I submitted all of that to the network and nobody, nobody had a rejection, I went, hmm, okay, now I get it. So from that point forward, when I introduced cameos to the show, I never called them by their real name. And Black Panther was called African Mutant Number 3. That was his name when I submitted it to the network. And so that's how I got all these cameos into the show because I never called them anything what they would recognize. You know, the Doctor Strange and Thor and Watcher and Eternity, they were all mutants. Mutant number this, and mutant number that. And uh, that's how I got a lot of uh, the, the other parts of Marvel into the show. And see, I, kn I knew instinctively, I, I remember the feeling that I had reading the book of how Sam would add other, you know, Thor into Spider-Man. I had a gut feeling that if I added that to the X-Men, it would add so much more excitement to the show because you wouldn't know what new characters you might, that might pop in. For me, I would only add cameos if it wasn't a distraction from the original story. So it was more eye candy for fans like you, but if you didn't know Marvel mythology, it was like looking at a, at a fire hydrant. It didn't mean anything to you, but to the fans it did. And so that's what I wanted to do, is give back to the fans and engender that type of uh, Wow, did you see that? That was cool, you know, that kind of stuff to the show. And so that's how Black Panther got into the show. When they uh, called me to take over Fantastic Four Season 2, you know, I, otherwise I, I would have done the fifth year of the X-Men. I only did the first four, but they called me away to do the second season of Fantastic Four because the first season was not good. And so I told them, like, I would only change if we did, if you guys let me do the original classic story, and you leave me alone, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Stay out of my damn hair. And so they did. That's when I, I left uh, Marvel Productions to work with New World Pictures to do the second season of Fantastic Four. And I told them, I wanted to do the Black Panthers. So that's one of, one of the episodes. I must do the Black Panther. So eventually, you know, that script came in. And, uh, yeah, I got a chance to do, you know, the Black Panther the way it should be. I did we took the two original uh, stories, mushed it into one episode. And I got, when I, we had the voice casting for the show, um, the first time I heard Keith David read the lines, I said, that's it. I don't know that's it. I don't need any other voice actors trying. We got our Black Panther. And he became the Black Panther for me. And uh, just fast forwarding, like maybe the last, within the last five years or four years, when they did the Black Panther again in uh, today's The Avengers series, they brought the Black Panther in, and Keith David became uh, the Black Panther's father. So they did reuse him again. He became the father of the Black Panther. They had a new voice actor to do the Panther. That's awesome. Yeah. In all your years of drawing superheroes and reading comics, do you have a favorite character that you've drawn? Or do you have a favorite Marvel character in general? Oh, man. Um, hard to say. I, as a concept, I always loved the X-Men. 
since I was growing up. I, it's something about the concept of the X-Men. Um, not any one particular character, I guess. I mean, back then, in the beginning, I guess it was, uh, it was Cyclops back then, but, you know, later on became Wolverine with the new with a new iteration of the group. The other concept I always enjoyed was uh, Legion of Superheroes. Because I always thought, as a kid, I wanted to be one of those characters. Who, it was like a group. It was like a clubhouse full of super kids. And, you know, you could be Chemical King or you could be uh, Monel or Colossal Boy or all those fun little concepts. As a, you know, as a nine-year-old, eight-year-old kid, that was kind of fun to uh, read. So, I never got a chance to do Legion, but at least I got a chance to do uh, the X-Men. For me, one time, the one character I, I I do like a lot because I wear I have a, a lot of the books was the Silver Age Superman series. As a young kid, that was like so much fun to read, even though it had all these other weird characters like Superboy, Supergirl, Super, whatever. Um, it was just fun, uh, you know, stuff back then. Um, the the most modern stuff today, I'm not into. Because I don't know what the hell they, you know, when they did the New 52, I stopped reading the stuff. I, it wasn't the stuff I grew up with. I figured, okay, that's for a new audience. They can support it. I just, I kind of walked away from it. I don't, I really don't know what's going on with the books anymore at DC with Superman and stuff. But uh, back when I was, you know, I just tried, I tried to uh, channel my, my, the inner kid inside of me when I was working on all the shows. And I always used to tell myself, like, if I can draw something and this little kid inside of me can get excited about it, then I'm on the right track. I'm on the right track of trying to uh, maybe pass on that type of enthusiasm and excitement onto the audience and onto another generation so that they can do what I did and do even do it better than I did. And that's, you know, to pay it forward, so to speak. You know, that's always been something I... I felt like that's what happened with me with uh, starting some like Johnny Quest forward, and uh, and I want to pay it forward to someone else and let them take, you know, take the reins and do something even more cooler than I did. The one thing I do, Eric and I do remember, we do agree upon, is that uh, what we did on that series, you can't replicate today because we made a lot of decisions without asking anybody. We kind of like did stuff without asking permission, and so. You can't do that today. There's so much bureaucracy. You know, this, you, you can't do that. I've made a lot of decisions without asking anybody. I just did it. Because this is the way I thought I wanted the show to look like. I wanted the show to be like this. You can't do that today. Nope, not anymore. Well, Larry, as fun as this has been, if we don't wrap this up soon, I think you and I are going to bull spit probably for the rest of our lives. <laughs> yeah. So before we go... Why don't you tell the listeners where they can look you up and keep up to date with you? My son helped me set it up. Um, I have a website called Larry-Houston.com where I set up uh, a lot of stuff that I've worked on. Um, I'm setting up links to maybe for people to buy print. And uh, I have a, I, I had a book, a comic book that I drew back in um, – high school called The Enforcers, which was, you know, my, my kid version of a lot of superheroes stuff back in, in the 70s. It's kind of like a very 60s type book. Anyway, I got it published as a graphic novel. And if you go to Comicology, just type in Larry Houston Enforcers, and you'll find it there. Or you can get a digital copy of it. And uh, what's keeping me busy is doing print. I'm writing screenplays. Cause I, I also did an independent book through Charlton Comics called um, The Vanguard, which is like three female superheroes. I'm working on, on bringing that book back and also writing a, I got a screenplay over at CAA uh, for representation. So we'll see what happens with it. So I'm keeping busy by doing little things like that. But uh, yeah, you can basically go to, if you go to larry-houston.com, I'm trying to keep it up to date. It's a work in progress. Trying to work out the bugs in it, you know. I just recently got on Twitter. Disney Plus app told, you know, they asked myself and Eric and Julia uh, to be a part of it. So now I'm on Twitter as uh, X-Men Director. Awesome. And I'll be sure to add those links in the episode description so the listeners have an easy access point to find those. 
Okay. And listeners, you know, you can find me and other great podcasters over at electronicmediacollective.com or also on Twitter at the handle Moose Media Inc. Larry, it has been a pleasure chatting with you for not one, but two great episodes. Thank you, sir, for for uh, inviting me down. It was great to talk about the old good old days and stuff like that, you know. Oh, it was my absolute pleasure. I mean, getting the inside stories to the shows we love and the stuff we're interested in is an absolute treat. And I couldn't ask for a better guest. Oh, well, thank you, man. I'm glad. I, I Hopefully everybody will enjoy what we talked about. And uh, like I said, I hope, you know, the next crop of artists and will take what, what, uh, what we've done before and do it, do it even better than we did. That's what I, what I always hope for. And Moosepack, there's a lot of good podcasts out there. And unless you heard it here, it's probably just a load of bull spit. <laughs> Until next time, take it easy. Ooh-wee. That sure was some bull spit, but I sure had fun. Junior, you just helped. Be sure to tune in next time. The one thing I can remember doing in season one was, um, and you can include this into the interview if you want, um, in season one, I wanted to um, reemphasize um, the frenemy quality between Xavier and Magneto. And so at the end of the last episode, when it looks like Xavier is going to commit a kamikaze run and to try and kill Mastero, I included Magneto gets on top of the ship and creates a force field to prevent Max, uh, Masterwell from destroying the Blackbird before Xavier could get close enough to let the ship run into him. And so when they're floating down in midair, they have a conversation about, you know, until we meet again, words to that effect, but basically something that, that show that these guys are on the same side but they have different methods and that it, it, it really reinforced their frenemy relationship. Cause the first time he saw Magneto, he just acted like a, a bad guy. And in this one, they even bring Magneto to the mansion to heal him. And, uh, that's something I remember doing. And the stuff I told you about Magneto helping Xavier, none of that was in the script. I made it all up.